y'all, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Source Code Podcast. I'm Chris Sanders, coming to you from Gainesville, Georgia, right here in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, episode seven means we're almost to the end of the first season. We have eight episodes, which means you have this episode and you have one more in two weeks. Then we're going to be taking a break for a little while, and during that time, I'll be recording the next set of interviews, so that's really important. I need great stories, good people to interview, and I've got a nice list, but I'd love to take your suggestions too. So if you are interested in being interviewed for the podcast, maybe you have an interesting story or unique perspective, certainly let me know or even suggest someone else you'd really like to hear their story. Um, It can be anyone from the realm of information security or even outside of it. Um, As you'll see in today's podcast, we're even doing something a little bit outside of security. It can be general computing, uh, general technology or engineering, anything like that. I may ask you to make me an introduction if it's someone you know and I don't, but uh, I'd love to take your suggestions and you can get those to me via email, uh, chris at chrissanders.org or via Twitter at chrissanders88. Now, before we get started here, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, and it's one I'm intimately familiar with. It's uh, Applied Network Defense. That's the training company I run. We're focused on online, affordable information security training. There are a lot of training options out there, but some of them are really going to break the bank, and a lot of them are just kind of thrown together and really low quality. So we kind of hit that middle range. We want it to be something you can afford if your company's not paying for it, but something that's really high quality, topically focused, that's going to help you in your job, help you get a better job, or help you make more money. Those are all the things. Things we're working towards. So I have quite a few classes out here already. One of those is my uh, very popular investigation theory class where we learn all about how to catch bad guys, how to think about being an investigator. I promise you it's the only class like it anywhere in the world. Uh, some really neat techniques and some really cool lab scenarios there as well. So investigation theory is online. The next online offering starts in a few months, so you've got a little bit of time to sign up. It is only run quarterly because there is a discussion component. I like to have everyone kind of in sync. If you prefer live training, I'm running a live version of the course in Augusta, Georgia in September. Uh, it's going to be in the two days before Security Onion Con and B-Sides Augusta. So if, you, uh, if you're interested in, uh, in going to the live training, that's a really good opportunity to do it and stay for a couple of really cool uh, conferences, and I'll be at those as well. Uh, beyond that, I also have my practical packet analysis course. It's open right now, over 40 hours of content. It can take you from zero to hero uh, with packet analysis really quickly using tools like Wireshark, TCPDump, T-Shark, and so on. And of course, my effective information security writing course. It's only $97, really cheap, really great way to enrich your writing and make it a lot more actionable. So quite a few courses offered by Applied Network Defense there. If you want to learn more, you can check them out. Uh, you can go to my personal blog at chrissanders.org training, or you can go to Applied Network Defense. Uh, dot com and sign up there. Now I want to get you over to our guest this week, and this is probably the interview I'm the most excited about, and it actually diverges from technology a little bit. We're going to be talking to Bill Pollock, and if you don't know Bill, he is the head kahuna at No Starch Press, which is a very popular publisher, especially within information security crowds. Uh, most of the books on my bookshelf were published by No Starch, and I'd venture to say that might be the case for you as well. Of course, Bill published Practical Packet Analysis, which was the first book I ever wrote uh, 10 years ago now. It seems like it's been quite a long time. Uh, Bill took a chance on me and was very pivotal for my career. Uh, Writing that book opened up a lot of doors, and not the least of which, it really helped me realize that I love writing. And that was my first book, and since then I've written five books. So uh, quite a few, uh, quite a bit of writing has spawned from that, and writing and doing that process really uh, uh, helped me figure that out. So uh, we're going to talk to Bill about a lot of things. Uh, It's going to be less about tech and more about uh, his life 
growing up in uh, in New York and going uh, up through the publishing industry, uh, seeing a lot of companies do it ways in which he didn't think it should be done, uh, and eventually starting his own publisher and kind of following his dreams. So we're going to talk about his childhood. We're going to talk a little bit about some bullying and things like that that occurred, um, his interest, and a whole variety of things. And uh, Bill's a really great example of having dreams as a kid and being able to live those dreams later in life and then enabling others to live their dreams as well. It's a really cool thing. I think it's a really inspiring story. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned here and listen to Bill's story completely. And I think you're going to get a lot from it. So with that said, let's get on over to Bill. Well, Bill, you and I, of course, work together. We just finished working on Practical Packet Analysis 3, the third edition. And uh, I just realized, I didn't notice how I was writing kind of the last little bit of that, that it had been 10 years since the first edition had been released. Did you realize it had been that long? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I actually am kind of amazed sometimes when I look at books we published. I've had I've got a couple of books that have been going since the late 90s, and I'm actually kind of amazed that they're not only are they still around, but in the at least a couple of cases, the sales have gone up dramatically over the years, which has not been the trajectory for most computer book publishers. Yeah, wow. Well, now that's that's ten years. That's a long time. How long has No Starch Press been around? Since uh, ninety four. Ninety four. Do you still remember yeah. the very first book you published? Um, I think the very first one was called uh, "I Lost My Baby, My Pickup, and My Guitar on the Information Highway." <laughs> so it's a it's a little uh, it's a little book of humor. It's still probably funny today. Um, we were we were distributed by a company that just didn't really understand what to do with. I mean, we were you know this was nineteen. I guess the first book was probably released ninety five. Wow. So I was way early with things that today, well, that one was kind of an outlier, right? But like I published uh, a book on SCSI that year, I think, which was actually a great book, although I, I had to basically do 70% of the book because it wasn't coming together. And that set a model for what was to come. Uh, and then I did a, what did I do that year? Maybe the Needle Crafters Computer Companion? I'm not sure. So I started doing, I, I wanted to do kind of books for hobbyists. I, I, I leaped forward a little too quickly with the internet. I I just I was going to do all these people. I was going to do books for all these people who I thought were all over the internet in '94, '95, not realizing that it was really just getting started. To me, it was already there. Obviously, things have changed a whole lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, cool. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about No Starts, but before we get into that, I kind of want to talk about you know your origin story a little bit, where you came from, and and I think of you as this West Coast guy. You're out obviously in uh, in California there, but you're not you're not from California, is that right? No, I'm born from the East Coast. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, t- well, tell that's me. Funny. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about where you're from and what it was like growing up there. Uh, I grew up. I grew up in a town called Roslyn on Long Island, it's the North Shore of Long Island, which is. Probably not the shore I would have chosen, but I also probably wouldn't have chosen to grow up on Long Island to begin with. So Long Island is basically, you know, stuck there past Manhattan. In order to go anywhere, you have to get off the island through Manhattan, which is always congested, and it's worse probably now than ever. And uh, I grew up in a town where I thought we were pretty well off, and what I realized later in life is that we were that I was basically going to school with all these people who lived in mansions and like giant properties. And we had a little, we, I mean, by Roslyn standards, you know, a modest house that to me seemed giant. And we were between the railroad tracks in the, um, in the flight path of the planes between two major highways. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, I mean, 
by Bay Area standards, it was great. But but for Roslyn, it was nothing special. Uh, I I did not um, can like many people in our uh, reading, uh, many of our readers. I would say I was probably uh, in many ways an outlier. I didn't um, I didn't belong to any particular group. I didn't get invited to parties. I got picked on a whole lot, and uh, and and I and that's a, a, a lot of the. A lot of that experience underlies kind of where our program has gone. I published books for people in many ways like me or growing up like me who feel kind of isolated, want to learn things where their teachers don't really understand them in particular and the fellow students don't or their parents don't. And they're, um, you know, they're reaching out, trying to figure out, you know, how to find their way in the world. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I'm sure I can relate to that a little bit. I'm sure, like you said, a lot of your readers do as well. Now, you know, so as a kid growing up in Rosalind and, and you kind of, you know, were, were a little bit of an outcast and, you know, maybe your teachers didn't understand you fully. So what did you do? What what did you do that kind of kept your mind working? And obviously you're you're kind of a tinkerer yourself a little bit in some ways. So what, what kept your mind fresh? What kept you going when you were young in, in Rosalind? So I, I just worked all the time. I would come home and just work, do my schoolwork. I'm, I'm not a t- – I mean, I've played with things – over the years, but I usually never completing them. I got bored easily. So I remember, you know, trying, I started doing work on the ham radio thing and I never finished that. I had a chemistry set. I was always very interested in science, but the thing is I found the chemistry set about six years ago, basically unopened because <laughs> <laughs> I also liked it to preserve everything. It's not that, I mean, I was good in the lab, but I just, uh, I was not someone to go and do my own experiments. I basically would follow instructions and work, really hard to master things. I was uh, very interested in mostly science. I was a very strong science student. So I spent, uh, I, I invested a lot of time in that. I also did a lot of, I was I was serious about my English classes. I was not a strong math student. And, I, and that's also one thing that's impacted the kind of things that we do. Like, And I think the issue with math for me was that like for many people, math is taught as a, a collection of memori- members, like things to be memorized. Memorize this formula. Let's. I'm not going to explain it. This is how trigonometry. This is. It wasn't ever, for the most part, like it's not. This is why trigonometry exists. Here's how to do it. Here's why these things work. It's like memorize this formula. So you learn these things in isolation, without an understanding. And one thing I've learned later in life, um, as I watched my son grow up, basically as a mathematician, is that without proofs, math doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And some people who are great at memorizing this stuff will just memorize it and ace the tests. But the people who really move these things, move areas forward, are the people with a deep understanding. So once you, when you understand proofs, you really understand math, and I think you can really remember it. It's almost like proofs are almost like the pictures missing in a story where you need that kind of visualization. Proofs help you to understand where things came from. These things are on a continuum. So. I always wanted a deeper understanding of things, but the way that um, the public schools were oriented, and I think in general that Roslyn had very good, good public schools, but the way they're oriented is toward you know taking the tests. So that works for biology, where you it's basically a lot of memorization, and you know I would I would ace all my biology exams, and I was one of, certainly one of the top science students in the school. In biology, you know one of the top two or three. In physics, I was one of the top ones, but I I. I had a good understanding and grasp of physics, but not necessarily the basic math that was involved. Sure. And chemistry, I was a good, I was a good chemistry student, and I was also top top English student, you know. But uh, but ultimately, when I was looking for 
a crowd to connect with. They, I didn't, you know, people when they're in high school, or I, I think back to high school because I think I've blocked out much of the earlier years. You know, people aren't necessarily interested in speaking about intellectual stuff. It's it's not that kind of environment. And I think you're strange when you want to talk about stuff that to you was interesting. And they're just like, oh, I got so drunk last night. You know, I threw up whatever. And I'm like, I would think that's just stupid. Why would you do that? Plus, I never got invited to parties anyway. So I never even got to see that in real life. That Now I've seen plenty at DEF CON. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, you're making up for that now, I think. <laughs> uh, so so you're, you know, like I said, you, you were kind of an outcast a little bit. You kind of gravitated towards science did your parents kind of foster this, this whole like focus in science and, and kind of diving into your work thing? I mean, were they, no. were they supportive of that or, or not? No, they, it's not that they weren't supportive. I mean, my mother didn't have a college degree. My father went, um, he went to college, but he's, my father made wedding gowns. That was his business. And they didn't understand like, like many parents, you know, they didn't understand what their kid was into and because what I was doing was so different from what they were in, in, interested in. They were, you know, th- they were very supportive in their way as people were growing up. But it's also like like many parents today, if like you've got a kid who's a programmer, the kid's 10 and you've never touched programming, you can barely even use your computer. It's the kid's like an alien in your house. There's a way to, there's a way to bridge that divide, I believe, you know, through understanding. But I think the other thing that parents need is if they can't bridge the divide, I think they need resources to help. They want resources to help, help their kids to learn because they don't feel like they can do it on their own. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, what I did was probably alien to them. I mean, my father wanted me out playing baseball. I couldn't catch a baseball. So I would go, go out and he'd think he just gave up. It's like, he'd throw me a baseball. I couldn't catch it. Cause I also realized later in life that I had, and this was just, you know, growing up, I don't know how, how this happened. I have uh, severe astigmatism in one eye, and it turns out that it was never corrected. So try to catch a baseball with one eye. It's really not – it's wow. almost impossible. Yeah. So, um, But these are the kind of things that affect people when you get kids. And I know there are kids growing up today with stuff like that. And when you're young, you don't necessarily know how to communicate that. What you feel is like, I can't do this. I don't understand why. What's wrong with me? How come these people don't like me? And I think when you're growing up in an environment like that, or I, and I wouldn't say outcast is the I would I don't I wouldn't consider myself I don't think I was an outcast I was definitely the target of bullies in the school. Uh, there were some people who were really nasty, and uh, I I was at the time and I don't think I am anymore, but I was a, a very nice and sensitive kid, and I used to cry easily, whatever. And that's not that's not the case now. So when you're growing up in an environment like that, you can tend to become withdrawn because it's self protective. People were bothering you that I remember walking to the hall in school and this guy would like knock the books out of my hands. And I was like, you know, I, and all I wanted to do was go to class and learn. And that's, and there are people like me always. I think there are people like that who want to learn. I'm like, leave me alone. Right. So what changed for me is when I joined the wrestling team in my junior year, and it was kind of amazing because basically these same bullies just left me alone because now I was friends with all the wrestlers and I was a terrible wrestler. I, I lost one match in, in competition in 17 seconds, I was pinned. And the reason, and I learned why later, uh, on later on in life, why I was such a bad wrestler is that I used to kind of go through this whole sort of Rolodex on my mind of different moves to use in a match. And the way wrestlers work, it's like they cultivate one move and they just do it. To me, that was boring, which is also consistent with, you know, my, I try things and I get bored with them. 
But if you're a wrestler, you do one thing. You do a single leg takedown, and there's a, something called a Gramby roll, whatever. And that's what they do, and they become the best at it. And that wins matches. To me, it was like the most boring thing I could ever do. I didn't want to do the thing I did last time, even if it worked. I wanted to try the new thing. But when you're trying to win in a physical competition like that, that doesn't always work. Yeah, but absolutely. That, but that was becoming a wrestler was significant in that it, it had people leave me alone. I was always strong, but it didn't matter. It's like you 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 know you might be physically strong, but not emotionally strong. And when people decide to attack you, and that, you know you have to know how to get out of that. Sure. Yeah. And wow. it's not easy. It's not easy when you're young to help to to figure out how to do that. No. It's and when your parents, I, I remember calling up uh, the parents of this guy who was one of the worst bullies, I called his parents up and I said, you know, your son's this, whatever. And I think they didn't know what to do. And I don't know if I would have ever counseled my own son to do that if he had gone through the same thing. But I, I know there are people who go through that kind of thing today. And you read about, now you read about it in the news or on the web. So-and-so gets attacked on Facebook and then they kill themselves. You know, like th that's, that's what happens. And that's, so that's one reason why in the last few years I've really been pushing in our STEM or STEAM program, depending on your perspective, trying to create resources uh, for younger people. That's why I started the No Starch Press Foundation earlier this year to basically, and one of the first things we're going to do, at least the plan, I'm, I'm starting on it now, is to try to build a site to connect kids up with people who want to teach them, kids who want, you know, need a connection to the community, have pe people don't understand them, like the kind of stuff that you do but uh, in rural areas, you know, connect people up and, and have them, you know, help them to fulfill their desires their, or their intellectual needs um, if they're not being fulfilled because the resources aren't everywhere around the world. And wow. there are kids who grow up in any, any part of the world and they're bright kids, they're capable kids, but they don't have people who understand them who, or can support them. And they think they're weird or they think like, so there's something wrong with me. How come I can't get this? And sometimes, you know, in the hacker world, those kids go to the dark side because they're angry. And, yeah. And what else are they going to do? You know, like, but well, well, they, there's other stuff they can do. They don't have to do that, but they get angry, so they want to get back. At sure. The people who've been bothering well, them. well, tell me this, and, and maybe you know, this is probably not something you necessarily set out to do, but I would imagine it's got to be a pretty gratifying thing. You know, having been bullied to know that your company publishes the books that you probably would have been really interested in as a kid. And, you know, I would have loved my company when I was a kid. <laughs> exactly. Like that so cool. I would have read all the manga guides to math and science. I would have, I would have been a coder. I mean, when, when I was in school, we were using punch cards. Yeah. Right. So like, <laughs> well, well, and even further, I mean, you talk about the, the kids who get bullied and bullied and bullied and eventually they do something horrible. They end up taking their life, something like that. I mean, it's gotta be a neat feeling to know that maybe the books that your company's publishing are something that those kids are able to kind of put that, I won't say anger, but put that into, and maybe that, you know, helps them, gives them a purpose and, and keeps them going. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. I, well, I don't know, you know, I don't have anecdotes that say that, but what I believe is that I think if, if the books help someone to be fulfilled and help them to grow, that they'll be happier. And, I, and it's basically like when you've got a thirst for knowledge and a knowledge, like, so in, in w one thing that's informed our list too is watching my son, my son's now 19 and he's studying uh, pure math and computer science. But growing up when he was like 10 or 12, he would read college textbooks on astronomy. There was nothing else for him. 
like the he would read you know like primary sources on math because all the the advanced math books and we haven't fixed that problem yet. I, that's another thing I want to tackle. But um, you know there the weren't there wasn't stuff out there like the and we we only have a few programming books for kids now we're doing more programming books for kids uh, and i also want to do math books for kids and i'm looking for people to to work with us to develop those but the resources weren't there i i'm fortunate and i think he was fortunate that i'm connected to people and i understand the community so i could introduce them to mathematicians or programmers or you know computer scientists but that's not true and we're also in the bay area that's not true of every kid around the world Sure. I mean, my parents could never – if I had said to my parents, hey, I'd like to learn about this programming stuff. Who can I talk to? I don't know what they would have said. I mean literally we had – in high school we had a we had a machine that used punch cards and all they did is they did just basic math. And I had no idea why anyone would care to do this. Like what's the point? I didn't have any vision. I, I didn't – I just didn't give it much thought. It just wasn't on my radar. Plus I was much more interested in uh, natural sciences. Sure. Now, so let's so let's talk about you're in high school and you're you're going to college and you know I don't guess in high school or was it in college when you really decided you wanted to go into uh, the publication world or did that that come later? Kind of tell me, walk me through the sequence of of kind of your college decision and and how you eventually got from from A to Z in terms of working in publishing. I chose. I went to Amherst College undergraduate and I I only chose to go there because at the time it was the most selective school that they, they, I mean, it was a smaller and extremely selective school. And when I was applying to college, it was a much simpler process. It basically worked like this. You know, you, you have these grades, this ability, you'll probably get in here. This might be a reach, whatever. And they narrow it down. And I applied to that, to one school. I went to the school. I thought it looked like it had a nice campus. I had no idea how to evaluate it. And it's like, I'll go here. So I applied and I got in and I was done. Now, the I studied political science in college. I actually went thinking I would be a biology major, and I chose not to take biology. And this is again where, you know, parents are important, and it's important to have. This is why the the mentor thing I think is important too. I I got turned off by all the pre meds, because when I was in school, everyone was becoming a doctor. They didn't know why. Just like today, people were like, "I'm going to be a mechanic." I saw this on on tours of college campuses. I want to be a mechanical engineer. And you look at these kids and it's like, do you even know what a mechanical engineer is? I, I, whoops. Uh, I'm not, are you still there? Yep. I'm here. Go ahead. Sorry, my, my phone buzzed. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, I, I don't even, I don't even believe that they know what these things are. So I got turned off. I, I remember taking a, I think it was a general chemistry class. I sat in the front, I sat in the, maybe I sat in the front row or whatever, but all they did was ask about what was going to be in the test. I was there to learn the chemistry. And, and that's, and I was like, I don't want to go through this. This is BS. So I, I didn't take any science classes. I started taking political theory, which was really actually interesting. And I read, you know, primary sources, federal's paper, you know, American political thought and international political thought was, I had never studied this kind of stuff in my life. So I ended up taking some political science classes and English classes and stuff, just figuring I'll get to the science eventually. And I, and then, uh, my surprise was in my sophomore year, I had to declare a major and I couldn't stand the school. I wanted to get out of there. So I looked at what, what I had and I was like, well, what can I finish the fastest? It was political science. So I became a political science major, not because I loved the topic. I simply, I didn't want to major in anything. I just wanted to learn everything. So, but I picked that. And then, then when I realized, and, and this is a message I have to all people who are in college, like your major does matter because then the whole, the whole school is, is designed around 
that particular major. You have to take classes that you don't like, and I ended up taking a whole series of classes I couldn't stand. I thought the whole major was a bunch of nonsense. Basically, three or four courses, I think that was enough. And then the other stuff to me was a repeat of everything. And, and, and what I missed out in college, the things that I've you know, learned since, was just kind of, to my mind, like the, I, I missed out on pursuing things that I truly loved. Like I started to take a couple of biology classes. I took um, advanced biology classes in my senior year. I, I got them to let me out of the intro class because even though I hadn't taken bio for years, I knew all the bio so I, they, I placed out of the intro and I took cell bio and I took uh, developmental bio and I was really good at those classes. And then, and then it ended, that was it, you know, so it's unfortunate that I took that in the senior, my senior year and I should have been doing it earlier. Uh, and then after college, I went to work for my, for my father in his wedding gown factory for three years thinking like, maybe I can like this. And I realized, uh, there was no way I could, I could work there. For an extended period, it was just really uh, mind-numbing. And was that and was I that went, really was that kind of your first job? Was was kind of working in that that wedding? No, I used to work in restaurants. Summers, oh, okay. I would. I was terrible at that too. <laughs> I was. I, I worked as a. I worked as a busboy. I worked at the Palm Restaurant. I worked at some diner type place where I ended up um, literally <laughs> outside with the guy's son threatening to beat me up, like he was going to fight me because he's. I I had the. Uh, I was a good. I was. I was very good at carrying dishes as a busboy. Like I can do it still today, and I don't. You know, I can carry like dishes up my. I worked at a place called the Palm Restaurant, you know, steakhouse, mm-hmm. and the whole thing was like we had to basically carry you know ten dishes at a time on our arms. So I was good at that, and I was at a. I ended up working at this kind of divey place, and I was trying to teach another busboy how to carry dishes, and the owner started yelling at me like I should do it on my own time. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm just trying to teach this guy. He doesn't know how, how to carry dishes. And then his son got involved, and he's like, step out, come outside. He's gonna, he was going to beat me out. It's like, what the heck? So <laughs> I went outside, and then I just, I just walked away. Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, that escalated no, quickly. I, yeah, well, that was ridiculous. Yeah. But, I, but I worked in, I work in restaurants. I, was, I didn't have any particular skills. I, didn't, I just kept doing restaurant work. Sure. So, so you're now, so you're at this, so you're working with your dad now and you're working in the, in the wedding gown, uh, business and it's, you said it's kind of mind numbing to you. So what, what clicked, what got you onto the next thing? I, I remember having a conversation with a guy that ran the factory and someone who I liked, we would have nice conversations and I was talking with him about something I read in scientific American, which I used to read all the time and I just don't like where it's gone now, but it used to be great. And it was an article talking about how trees protect themselves. So basically like if a tree is wounded, the area around the gash kind of I, I, it kind of dies off or something. Like it basically walls it off. And anyway, I'm trying to explain to him, you know, this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I took some trees down in my backyard. I painted them with creosote. And like it was a totally – it's like I cannot – I can't talk about anything like this. So I applied for a – and got into a post-baccalaureate pre-med program at Penn. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania for three months. And that was like guaranteed admission. It was guaranteed admission to med school. Basically, if you went to the program, you would get into medical school. And the whole thing of med school was getting in. And I and I dropped out of that program the the morning before my first organic chemistry test because I was studying organic chemistry, and which was really interesting up to a point. And then basically what they do is make you memorize reaction mechanisms. So you learn about protein structure and function and how things work and how the structure of molecules affects their action, which is actually interesting. And then it's like, now go memorize the encyclopedia. And I, and I, I was in the, in the library studying this stuff 
And I thought to myself, I'm going to memorize this stuff and maybe I'll get a great grade on the test and I'll forget it in the afternoon. So what's the point? Also, like the experience I had with the general chemistry, after every class, they would run, they would literally like almost run to the library to get the old tests and they would just study from the tests. And so you leave a whole huge amount of knowledge on the table. And I was there to study. I wanted to learn the science. And I just thought like, there's no way I can keep doing this. Medicine's not about science. It's about, it's about getting in, you know, passing the tests, passing the exams. And you can see it in, you know, physicians today. There's so much specialization. It's like, you know, I used to work in an endocrine clinic. That was one summer when I was thinking of going to med school. I spent three months working. I, I think I did it two summers. Um, and I would actually work you know, around physicians. I would read uh, radiologic exams with thyroids. I would palpate thyroid exam thyroids and figure out what the nodules were. That's basically what they, these guys did. So basically, after three months, I could have done it as well as anyone. And you could, and I could have worn a hat that said, you know, thyroid specialist. <laughs> <laughs> And that's and that was that was my take on so much of medicine. Like the generalists are doing, they're the ones that have to you know absorb a huge body of knowledge. And I think, I think in many ways they're the real problem solvers. I think in many cases with with medicine, there's a lot of the everyday work is not big problem solving. It's not that physicians can't solve problems, but they're not asked. You know the routine thing when you go to the dermatologist today, and it was true in the 80s, is they give you cortisone. It's, it's, they're still doing the same thing. It's like very, very little has changed. I, I worked in a dermatology clinic. So, I mean, when I say worked, basically my father was friends with this guy. He played tennis with the guy who ran endocrinology, a really smart guy who I really enjoyed. And that was, I was very comfortable in that environment. And I was, I was definitely on the fence about whether to pursue medicine or not. And I liked talking with him, but so much of the, the work around them was to me really empty. But I would, he was, he was a really smart, smart guy. And uh, I, I liked that. And, but I remember even in conversations with them, I was, I mean, I was very fortunate. I didn't realize how fortunate I was to be, you know, with, I was, I would hang out with the residents. I remember sitting around with the residents talking about some issue and they said, you know, blah, blah is a beta blocker. And I said, what's a beta blocker? And no one knew. <laughs> so they asked me, they, they asked me to go to the library and find out. So I came back and I told them what a beta blocker was. Like, and then it's like, this is, this is nonsense to me. You just like, you know, and, and you see it in medicine today. They prescribe the stuff. They don't even know what it does. Some drug rep came in and sold, sold them the drug and they said, use it for this. And it's like, okay. And I'm not saying this is not to, to in any way damn all people in the medical profession, but a lot of people in medicine, I think, don't understand what's going on. They're not asked to understand what's going on. They're just prescribing stuff. I mean, there are other issues with medicine today yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely and 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 heck my wife is a general practitioner and she would agree with most of what you said right like there's no there's no doubt about it she'd especially agree with your gps about the the gps the ones who know stuff exactly she she would definitely agree with that part (laughs) yeah that's and that's how i feel about the whole of medicine except they're the ones that probably get the least amount of pay it's the specialists who do this one weird thing they're the ones anyway that that's that's a rant that I don't want to go on but that's but that that was my feeling about that so so what I did is I went from uh, I uh, I took a career interest test and they said the test because I had no idea what to do at that point and I was only in my mid-20s but I thought I was you know so old I couldn't you know I was done or I was young you know low 20s and uh, they said I should go into creative business advertising or publishing and since I thought advertising just seemed like a waste and did nothing for anyone I, I went into publishing, and I, I took a job at Spring River Log uh, in medical editorial, which was suited to what I had done, and I so I began work as an editorial assistant, and I used to rewrite the, the stuff that came in. This was this was in 1987, 
So basically, we had like we we got like a IBM PC XT or eighty eight whatever eighty eighty eight or whatever it was, but um, an early XT and I can't remember what other clones. I used to do the shopping for the machines and set them up, and because it was an alien, it was funny how people just didn't understand the stuff. So I set it up and. I think we had like one mach- one computer for say ten people or something, and uh, and I used to take these books. We we got the, the manuscripts for this the series called Oklahoma Notes, which is I think still around, and I would write the books because they were terrible. They were just badly written, so I would just rewrite them, and they were much better. And they and they sold actually well. And I used to go to uh, medical conferences and sell the books, and I would always do. I have like you know three hundred percent increases in sales because they they weren't good at selling. They didn't even know this stuff. Because I used to read, the, I used to bring the books home and read them. Mitral valve replacement, you know, like books, books on like these specialized topics that I found interesting. So I would just read the books. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me, uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. It saved me a ton of time. It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, It also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature and I had a chance to play with it recently and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe who are good friends of mine and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. And now, back to Bill. So now you, you're you into the publishing world, and you kind of did a lot of different things, right? Like you bounced around to a few different places before you decided to go off and do your own thing. Is that right? I went from uh, – so I worked at Spring Over Log for, I want to say, a year and a half or something, and they wouldn't promote me because I didn't have an advanced degree, and that's the way they worked. It was kind of like Google in the early days. Except the joke there was that the people with advanced degrees were like, here's the biology editor. He has a degree in botany but doesn't understand anything about human systems and wasn't particularly good at botany. And I could run circles around most of these guys as far as level of understanding. And I think I made some of them nervous too. And I probably still do. The, but so it was, it was kind of a nonsense requirement. But they wouldn't promote me. So I left to become a, a, a college textbook sales rep. I went to work for a company called Wadsworth. So I went into the, I went, I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I lived in Pittsburgh for, I think about three years. I don't know. I might be wrong. I think about three years. And I sold college textbooks. So I used to go on college campuses. I had this, I always had this tweed jacket. I I can't believe I actually wore this thing. And I would go trudging through the snow, whatever. And I would call on professors. I actually loved that part because I used to call on, like I I go to Carnegie Mellon. I go to University of Pittsburgh had some good people there. There were some small colleges that were interesting. And we talk about teaching and what their courses were. And my, my job was to basically try to see if we had a book that would work in their class. And I was very effective. I was, out of 75 reps, I was the number two rep for two years. And basically, the, I was behind the guy who just had his whole, his whole school, you know, all the schools wired for years. But uh, I, I was successful, very successful at that. So... Uh, 
but then I and then I they made me what was called a, what they called a field editor. Basically, they didn't think I was mature enough to go into the office. <laughs> and the joke was that like the people in the office were, I mean, you would never have brought them, and they just happened to be there. But I I I mean that was their loss. But I was in the I was in the field finding projects, so I was very good at acquiring things, finding smart people. The great thing there was like I used to travel to these great institutions, and I would talk to top biologists and. I remember going to Scripps Clinic and they were doing some real uh, advanced work in uh, protein simulation, like uh, like um, molecular, molecular modeling software and stuff. That was relatively early and very interesting. And uh, so that was cool. And the, I, I would talk to, I, I remember talking to this guy at Johns Hopkins who was like one of the top developmental biologists in the world. And we talked about developmental biology, which I loved. So that was pretty fun and rewarding. Uh, except that I wanted to actually be in the office, um, and they wouldn't. Since they wouldn't promote me, I left that job to go to uh, W. H. Freeman and Company, which is was part of Scientific American. I think it's been bought and sold since. I don't really know. They had a great track record. They published books like Stryer's Biochemistry, who became it was a book on my list. But and I met Stryer only one time, but I wasn't allowed to touch it. They did uh, so. I, they brought me on as a biology editor. So I, another one of my, book, my books was Darnell Lotus in Baltimore, but again, because the way that company was structured, I wasn't even allowed to talk to these top authors, even though the woman that talked with them didn't understand the topics. So, but I, I had, I had some interesting projects percolating, percolating on the, like human physiology and a new book on genetics that would have been great. And I also, and this was 1990, I was working on trying to develop a software-based molecular modeling kit because I was tired of trying to fit together these plastic parts to kind of create molecules. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? And I think it, I think it was, it would have been great to be able to just like play with molecules with software and just see how they interact. But that, that, that didn't, uh, that didn't come to, to fruition either. I wasn't allowed to, I, w I wasn't able to sign these things and get those done. So I was there for about a year, year and a half. Uh, and then they went around the office and, and a lot of this informs the way my company is designed today. They went around the office and basically fired editors because um, the president of the company was incompetent. This is also true in many of these companies. And so one after another, she would fire the editors. And uh, and then until she got fired two years later. So she canned me. And then I went to work um, at Osborne McGraw Hill. This is my last job in publishing other than No Starch, where I was doing computer books starting in 1990. Okay. So what was the, so I guess what was the impetus that, you know, I think I've always been in the belief that entrepreneurial people kind of have that in them from the beginning. Is this, it was no start something you always knew you wanted to do or it was a product of a circumstance you found yourself in? No, when I, when I went into publishing because of my father's background, because he was, he was, he was a businessman, you know, he had a business. I always intended to start a publishing company. Once I got into the business, like I'm going to do this, I can do this. It felt like home in many ways. Like I liked the business. Uh, when I went to, so I, I developed a simple course for myself. I thought it was important to go and actually understand how books were sold. So I went uh, into the field to sell books. I, I, of course, I thought it was important to develop books. So, you know, I, um, I mean, but, but that's one thing, one thing I've always done naturally. I always work with words and edit things. Uh, so, um, but I wanted a certain level of experience actually in, you know, talking to people about books and trying to understand like how books are sold. So uh, when I was at Osborne, I was doing uh, computer game books. So I'd call on like Maxis and 
Will, I think Will Wright was the head of Maxis then. So I went to his office, talked to Will, Will Wright about this uh, SimCity and stuff. And then we, you know, Sierra Online was big. And I mean, these companies have all changed. But those were those were kind of interesting days for these companies and meeting them. For some people, it's interesting that I met these people. But I, you know, it, game stuff was interesting, but not that interesting. So I also did uh, books and applications, which I, th- I thought were horrible. They would just crank out these books, you know, 800-page books on Excel that was basically just a rehash of the documentation. But in those days, almost anything that they did would sell because there wasn't really – in 1990, there was no internet. Not that, you know, not, not that it was being used. There was no web. So anything that they did was bought because there was no documentation. That's when O'Reilly was having its heyday at the time or being building because they were, they were doing documentation on Unix. Same deal. People need the documentation on Unix stuff. So Tim O'Reilly was building a program of Unix documentation. So but I left that. I left um, Osborne had its own issues in management. Uh, again, it was poorly run. We, they lost the president and the whole company devolved. And uh, they used to hate me there because I used to say, it used to take them literally six months to do a new book interior design. And I said, why don't we just hire three design companies and we can do them in you know four weeks? But anyway, they didn't like a lot of the things I said, even though I published a book there that basically kept the doors open in the company. It sold 50,000 copies in six months and they were going to, cl- McGraw-Hill was going to close the company. So they, <laughs> I published this book. I rewrote the whole thing. I think I lost 12 pounds doing it. And wh- I got a $300 bonus, which was nothing. Uh, big money, huh? And the, <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's, even though they told me this, this kept the doors open, we were going to close the company. <laughs> wow. Some loyalty so, there. Yeah. Right, so that was McGraw Hill, and they still work the same way, I'm sure. So I started No Starch in '94, but I, I spent a year writing a business plan, and I I think one one key thing, I mean, I've had a successful company since '94. We haven't had a down year in probably 20 years, and I think one key thing is that I started off with a clear plan. It's evolved over the years, and as I've grown to understand my own company, but I I kind of knew where I wanted to go. I did not want the same old same old tech book company. I don't want to just publish boring manuals, and I don't. I, I want I wanted to make books that people would want to read. So if you look at some of the earlier cover design, like on the SCSI book, it's a I hired a guy to do a painting of kind of what I imagine like SCSI, you know, crashing through the forest and cutting through to they build the perfect computer, which at the time was SCSI based. And then, uh, I mean, I I tried to do interesting covers. I didn't want to be surrounded by ugly books because so much of tech books, are, so many of these books are ugly. Yeah, yeah. Or you didn't want to be surrounded by ugly books, and you didn't want to be forced to put animals on the cover of every book, right? I like the animal covers; they're nice. But <laughs> I mean, but, you know, I mean, I think that's one thing that actually helped uh, O'Reilly as a differentiator. Is like they're, I mean, where you know these other companies, Q, Cybex, Osborne, had these just horrible looking covers. You know, O'Reilly had these cute animals. Yeah, it that's just makes fair. it. Yeah. So did well, you did you go in? Message. Did you go into? No starch. I mean, did you intentionally in your original business plan, was it the idea was to be exclusively devoted to tech books at the time? Or was that just really where you wanted to start or, or maybe not at all? It's what I knew at the time. I actually wanted to do science books, but I didn't have the science connection. So the easiest thing was to use what I had available, which were my my connection with tech book people, with agents that did tech books, with authors that did stuff. Um, that's the field that I knew. I th- probably good that I did it because it's been a really great area for us. But um, I actually wanted to be doing science books. I wanted to do things like the Scientific, scientific, scientific American Library, 
I tried to bring a book into that series. It's, it came out, and, and uh, it's called Machinery of Life. It was supposed to be a gorgeous book with paintings of the interiors of cells. And the first edition, it was all black and white. It was just, it broke my heart. It was like they just wrecked it. But, uh, but I wanted to do books like that. I still want to do books like that. Well, and you're starting to, to, right? I mean, you're, you're starting to release more books that are a little more general science than necessary computing. Is that right? Uh, not really. I don't think, I mean, the, the, we have some more general type titles, but not like what I want to do. Like the only things that we have for general science would be the manga guides. We have a, like 14 of them. Yeah. That's what manga I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah the, the, but, but what I'm talking about is something that would actually bring you into the discipline. So you could, so if you, if you like me had an interest in developmental biology, you could go and experience, you know, what's new and maybe it's being done. And the, the challenge with these books is that, there aren't necessarily that many people who care, so you have to be careful about doing stuff like that. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever get there and you'll be able to get to bringing in more science books, or is that not really on your, your mind anymore? Uh, I don't know that we would – I mean, I think the first thing we'll do is try to do science books for kids. We've, and we've done three of those too. So we did this Survive series, and those are biology books for like eight-year-olds. They're from, they're from Korea. They're illustrated with Korean manga called Manwa. And, uh, but those have not sold well, not because they shouldn't sell. I think we just don't have the right reach um, into the right communities. And that's going to change this August when we shift our distribution to Penguin Random House. I think that's going to be huge for us where we can actually get STEM stuff out into schools, school book fairs, school libraries, because I think that's a market that badly needs this information. You know, you've got an eight-year-old who wants to learn biology and the books are boring and they're too easy. So this is basically like hard science you know, made easier for an eight-year-old. So like, like challenging science. So learn some real science. Um, I, I don't know, you know, we'll see about, I, I feel like there's so much we need to do on the, just the tech side. I don't know who I would have to start like a science program. I'm also with our current distribution, we, we couldn't sell it effectively. But sure. once again, when we start with Penguin Random House, we can, it opens the door for us to do a lot of things that I wanted to do. Great. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one of the things I've noticed in, in having worked with you guys on and off now for about 10 years is you were one of the first publishers that really published security books that really grabbed people. Um, and that's kind of continued. And really one of the things I, you know, from my outside perspective that you guys did was so successful was spend time focusing on security books and also reaching out to individual security practitioners to kind of get them and, and, and say, Hey, deliver your expertise through this medium. And, you know, that will, you know, that will be a great thing. And because of that, I mean, no starch is now generally seen as the premier publisher, especially in the information security field. And was that, was that something you necessarily sought out to do? Was that a, you know, it's not necessarily a pivot, but diving into that specialty, was that something you sought out to do or is that something you just kind of did? And then when you got into it, realized, Oh wait, there's something here. I find security topics interesting, so I basically follow my nose. Like I don't, I don't document software because I, because I think it's boring. Because and that's the way we work when we sign projects. We don't want to take something on unless we have an editor to champion it. Like if ever, if no one's excited, we're not going to take the book on because no one wants to edit it. Everything we publish is read. I have six editors now, including myself, and we only published like 25 books last year. That's a huge amount of editors working on stuff. That's not, we also have five production editors. That's a lot of editors. So basically we, we need to pick titles carefully. We need to make sure that they actually have, you know, great potential, but then we also need to make sure that, I mean, what I look for is I want people to be excited about them and the excitement should come through the, it should carry us through the editorial process and it should bring in a book that's actually worth reading. So as far as InfoSec uh, in 90, 
I want to say 97. I don't know. Maybe it was later. I published uh, Steele's computer book. It might have been 99 or two. I don't know. And uh, that was basically meant to be um, – I, I don't know how – Oh I, oh, I always loved Abby Hoffman's book. So I had this idea for this book just about computing, although it didn't I, – I thought, like, couldn't we do, like, an Abby Hoffman type book, you know, steal this book, but about kind of using tech tools and stuff. And I don't know why I thought that was interesting at the time. But basically, it ended up being kind of like a, an introduction to the kind of the – the hacker underground sort of. So that gave me my first introduction into hacking and InfoSec and stuff. And it wasn't InfoSec at the time. It was just, you know, hacking stuff. And I found the community very interesting. And I found also a lot of really bright people. So going back to, you know, what I described with my, my early years, I felt I found in the hacking community, the kind of community I didn't have growing up. And that continues today. And, and as I've met people in the hacking community and many of the top security researchers, I find an intellectual crowd. And I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, 90% of the people who go to DEF CON. I'm talking about like a different crowd of people who are really moving the industry forward and really thinking outside the box. People who at three o'clock in the morning want to discuss privacy issues or issues with different types of attacks or software security, like the way programs are designed. That's interesting to me. So I found uh, a community that that likes to talk about ideas that that you know likes to argue, uh, is passionate about stuff. People are often you know very well rounded. So the, in the early years, I was I started to, to do I was very involved in the early in early Linux stuff in ninety seven ninety eight. I was doing a lot of uh, Linux oriented stuff, and I'd go to Linux shows and uh, open source. I was focused on like open source stuff and the computer security stuff. Didn't I didn't get that deep into InfoSec. I, I'd have to check to see when. I mean, I did like the closest I came was an IRC book, which I did in maybe the late 90s. It was actually a really good book. But uh, I didn't really, I, I didn't step outside and say, where should I go? I was just like, this is interesting. Let's do this. You know, it wasn't like everyone was climbing for an IRC book. But I found IRC interesting because I didn't like AOL and I wanted an alternative. So how do, uh, how do you do that now? I mean, as far as, you know, you're only publishing books that you guys find interesting. So do you start with a topic and say, I want to go find someone to, to, to write about this? Or do you start with people and then they give you the ideas and usually get them to do the book? Uh, both. You know, we, we're, I mean, sometimes it's like I just meet someone who I think is really smart and I say, you should write a book. And sometimes there's a book in them. So what I try to teach my editors to do is find. So when I was at Freeman, the the WHM, the model was to try to find Nobel Prize winners who could write. And that's, what, that's what we were tasked with doing. So I've carried that model to, uh, to tech world. And, I'm, and we're, not, you know, we're not looking at Nobel Prize winners, but I want the top people who have something to say. Now, ideally, you know, in an ideal world, they can write. Unfortunately, in the tech world, that's not often the case. That's why I have so many editors. <laughs> so we work through every line of everything that we publish. But so the, when we evaluate something... I'm looking at the potential. Like I can't do that with a book that's going to sell a thousand copies. The book might be great and interesting, but I can't, I can't support that with the overhead that I have. So I need books like Python Crash Course and Automate the Boring Stuff with Python. We have like two of the best-selling intros to programming in the world. I mean, maybe the Automate the Boring Stuff with Python might be the best-selling programming book on Python right now. Linux Command Line, a book that we sold, I think, 50,000 copies or more in print, is a great introduction to Linux. How Linux works, big seller for us. Like, the, so we look for kind of core topics that will benefit from, you know, 
a lot of editorial work because the editorial work is expensive. Uh, we sometimes might have an editor spend 200 hours on a title. And if you figure that at you know, freelance rates, that's $10,000 worth of editorial work. Wow. For, for, I mean, that, I can hire someone for 50, 50 bucks an hour to do that work. I can't get them for less. So, and if you want someone at my level, you're going to pay, I mean, if you were to hire someone who can do what I do, which is like understand the community, be able to, re- to read and comment on topics, it's 80 to 100 bucks an hour. Sure. Well, yeah, and the, other, the only other option is, is to go the other route, which is what the other publishers are doing, where they're hiring people who aren't even you know, natural English speakers to do this stuff, and, and they're missing so much stuff, and it's, and it's, it's kind of garbage. And, and you guys have gone the other route where you're kind of the premium service, and like you said, it's the people who can actually read this stuff and comment on it and actually provide value. That's an that's an unfortunate development in the publishing business that I think is an outgrowth of the of the concern that publishers have with their ability to survive. So instead of looking at their business and what's made them strong, they're like they just look at their bottom line and they and they bring in the bean counters and they start cutting and they cut randomly. I, I had a friend cut out of uh, she lost her job at a at a publishing company. She's one of the best publishers I know, and they just like this is a you know major publisher. Just cut her. That was it. She was done, and uh, she's she's a great publisher. She was great for their program. She had 350 employees. People loved her, and it was a successful business. So, and then they do things like, well, we can cut costs by sending out editorial to India, and instead of paying them, you know, thirty dollars an hour or whatever for copying, they pay them, you know, three dollars an hour, and you and you get you know garbage, and then everyone in house has to pick it up. So, it has to pick up the slack. So that what you've seen with a lot of tech publishers is. And it's easily apparent there are at least a couple of companies, and all they seem to do is just crank out more books. They call themselves a publisher, but they're really just like a printer. So why not use Amazon CreateSpace? So they don't offer support. And what I point out to authors is like when you, when you strike a deal with us, you know, we pay you a certain royalty, right? You, you're paying us by not taking all the profit. Right? Like we're, we're using the profit to pay our overhead, to, to uh, you know, cover distribution costs and marketing costs and stuff. But, but ultimately, like, you know, there's always money left on the table. It's going to go somewhere. I need it to support my business, and I also want to make a profit as a business. It keeps, us, it keeps my staff employed, and it keeps them, on, it keeps them part of the company. Because we also sure. we pay bonuses to our staff. I, I pay, like, discretionary bonuses. They've got a pension plan. They get profit sharing. That's really important to me because I'm basically – I'm in SOMA surrounded by tech companies, and I need to make sure that – it's important to me to make sure that my people stay, that, that I retain them because that's what builds the business. Absolutely. Well, well, tell me this, and, and this is the the real last question I'll ask you here. Yeah. You know, I, I get asked this a lot, just having written books, and I'm sure you get asked it all the time. So, if if I'm a guy and I'm just, you know, I want to write a book, I've got a topic I'm really interested in, and right. I'm really interested in writing a book. What would your advice be? It, like with starting a business, it's very important to have a plan. I mean, people can always write to us and say, "Would you like something in this topic?" But I'm not going to sign a book based on that because of the way we work. We're, and there are companies that will but I'm not going to work like that. And even if, even if I think you're great, I don't want to sign the project with you until we're sure that this is where you want to go and we're on the same page. So write, figure out what it is that you want to do. Make sure you understand who your reader is, why you're doing it. Recognize that you're probably not, you know, it's very unlikely you're going to get rich off this thing. But in, but what's great about InfoSec stuff is you've got people making, you know, two dollars $300,000 a year doing InfoSec. It's great to have a book from a company that you respect or that is, respected it's basically a giant calling card it's like i wrote this and several of our authors have gotten jobs because they wrote a book on this topic so but write a plan and and i ask people 
you know, to write a proposal and I do it for a reason. I want them to understand what the, where they're going with the book, what it's going to look like, what the challenges are. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Take the time to write that plan, work through the book in your in head or, and as you've probably experienced, I'm sure like you start writing, it's like, Oh, I'm in chapter three and that should have been in chapter one or I'm in chapter six and I forgot this in chapter four. Oh, yeah. If there's no plan, then you just spin your wheels and it's frustrating. And I've had people give up on projects because they just got so frustrated. So to make the project work, like like starting a business, have a plan. Know who you're writing for, why you're doing it, and you know, and then you have a much greater chance of success. And you see, I think a lot of businesses fail today because they don't have a plan. They're yeah. like, I, I have this great technology. Bitcoin companies are classic. It's like, we're doing this blockchain stuff, but we don't really know what we're going to sell. And someone gave us $50 million. Okay, but let's let's think about what the product is because sometimes magic happens when you just think like, oh, we could turn into this product. Suddenly, the fifty million can become a hundred million if you actually have a plan. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. That's that's wonderful. That's great advice, and I appreciate you you sharing that. Well, well, well listen, Bill, I can't I can't thank you enough. I mean, obviously, you've uh, uh, you know, like you mentioned, kind of a calling card, practical packet analysis. You know, has been huge yeah. for me personally. Yeah. Uh, it's it's helped it's me. Been a great book for us too. Yeah, you talk about helping people get jobs. I, I can say without question, it helped me get really my first security job, and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. So, man, I, I appreciate you guys. It sounds like you're really kind of getting to live out uh, some of your dreams, so to speak. And and you're you're, you're the same person now. I think in some ways as you were as a kid, the way you describe it in terms of being able to jump around to all these different things that interest you and to choose these books that interest you. And that's, that's an awesome thing. And I'm just so happy for you and happy for the continued success of no starts. So I appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, there you I didn't have a name for it when I was growing up <laughs> there you go. and Asperger's. <laughs> there you go. Well, well listen, now Bill, well, listen, I, I appreciate you and I appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks. I tell you, folks, when I started this podcast, that's exactly the type of interview I was looking to have. It's something that was a little outside of my comfort zone, and I think a lot of your comfort zones in terms of the skills and path that someone took to success, but something that I think is completely enriching, and I know it's very uh, enriching in my life to hear Bill's story, so I think that's very cool. Now, as always, if you liked what Bill had to say, let him know. Thank him for being on the podcast. You can find him uh, on Twitter, at Bill Pollock. Uh, you can also tweet at No Starch, of course as well. Uh, and of course, buy a No Starch book. They're really great books. They have the nice lay flat binding. Um, I would recommend Practical Pack Analysis, the third edition, of course, but there are a lot of great other ones as well. Uh, I have a whole shelf full of them right next to me. Uh, and I even get a discount and I often pay full price just because I want to support independent publishing and support what they're doing over there. So they're doing just such a great, great job. That said, that's going to do it for us on the seventh episode of the Source Code Podcast. Only one more left this season. Um, it's a special one. I saved it for last, and I hope you're really going to enjoy it here in a couple weeks. Otherwise, uh, let me know your feedback. I'd love to hear it at ChrisSanders88 on Twitter, and that'll do it for us. I appreciate y'all, and remember, it's a uh, beautiful day to catch bad guys. Take care.